So here's where we start today. Do you remember the word prouse? Do you remember this prouse word? We learned it a few years back. The Bible says, blessed are the prouse, for they will inherit the earth. Yes, but usually in English, when you hear meek, it rhymes with weak. And you think weak does not mean that at all. It is not blessed are the weak, the unable. It is blessed are those who have restrained strength. Picture a a giant horse, a Clydesdale or something. Like there is such latent potential in that animal to pull, to chase, to to run, to tow. Picture it walking slowly. Has all the strength inherent in it. That is us as the children of God. God's power inherent in us by nature of him being our father and us being connected to him. It is blessed are those who are prous. Aristotle defined it this way. I know there's a little bit of a recap, but I'm not sure everybody heard it the first time we talked about it a few years ago. So please dig into this word if you haven't yet. Aristotle said prous is the perfect balance between excessive anger, you know, rage, anger, and angerlessness. Inappropriate lack of anger where there should be anger. There is a way to be angry the right way about the right kinds of things and to the right extent. You know, when a child spills a bowl of food, that's not the time to fly off the handle and break your own plate against the floor and scream. That's an accident. It's an excessive anger. But when someone tries to harm your family or someone like makes a derogatory statement about God to say nothing and to be so weak that we couldn't stand up for what deserves to be defended or honored, that's excessive weakness. And prouse is about knowing how to stand in the middle. Blessed are the prouse, those who know that they are God's children and therefore there is nothing that is impossible because nothing is impossible for God. But we know how and when to exercise righteous anger, protective anger, defensive anger, frustrated anger. You know, all the wonderful, colorful shades of anger. And as Christians, we just try to avoid it all. Well, guess what happens? Anger is actually a human quality. God has anger. It's part of how we reflect his image. But he's angry about the right sorts of things. This is our problem today. We're angry about all the wrong things. I've talked with so many people even this last week that families are being divided and split apart over whether they get a vaccine or not. I never want to talk to you again. I never want to say, what is that? It is the wrong kind of anger about the wrong things. Now, there may be an appropriate response of frustration or anger, but it isn't, I never want to see you again. I promise you that is not Prouse. We're allowed to have firmly held convictions and still recognize there's a line you don't go past. Is not God honoring to respond in certain ways? Our world is angry about all these things and fighting about all of this, and yet we do not care about God. We do not fight for Him and His holiness. We do not worry about our own holiness or righteousness or what is good for us. We do not fight to protect those who need it. We fight to preserve what we have been given or gotten. So we're in defensive, protective mode. Don't touch my stuff. Don't tell me what to do. Meanwhile, the person next to us has no stuff, has no right, and we just let them go by the wayside. You know, the Good Samaritan all over again. We're just walking right by and letting people lay down in the dirt. When are we going to be angry about the right things to the right extent in the right way? Jesus got angry. He made a whip, and he started whipping at people. What would be worth whipping someone today. If you left here and encountered a situation that you were going to imitate the anger of Christ, 
which was the right amount about the right kind of things that matter in the right way, what do you think of all of our world's problems? Is the coronavirus worth whipping someone when you leave this building? No. Are politics worth whipping someone when you leave this building? No. Is money worth whipping someone when you leave this building? No. Are the things we're afraid of or the things we want or the things we're like striving for worth whipping someone else so that we can be safe, empowered, successful? No. We're going to read Jesus in the temple throwing over tables. We're not going to read it, but I'll just mention there's this place in Mark 3 also where Jesus is about to heal a man whose hand was withered, and it's on a sun, well, Saturday, their Sabbath day, and he looks around and he says, who thinks it's not right for me to heal this man's hand because it's supposed to be a day of rest? And nobody answers him, right? They're like feeling small in that moment. And the words in the Gospel of Mark says, he looked at them with anger. What deserves that? What's worth that level of anger? Is it in our toolkit? Well, I think we're going to see when we look at the temple, it actually informs us when is the right time to get that angry. And I think we might feel a little bit convicted. I know I have as I've read this passage. I'm not sure I'm angry enough about the things that matter the most. I think most of my frustrations are about the things that matter the least. And I should be fighting harder for the stuff that really matters the most in myself in God's church, in my family? Like, what are you willing to go to that length for? Let's read John chapter 2. Let's open it up and, and read it together. John 2, verse 13. I'm just going to jump right in. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. He drove them out of the temple. He drove them out of the temple, the temple. with their sheep and their oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written in Psalms. This is Psalm 69. If we have time, we'll go and look at it. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's a prophecy. Will consume me. It's a prophecy. One will come and zeal for God's house will consume him. And they're like, ah, we're seeing this. This is what's going on right now. This is the prophecy. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, those around, not his disciples, the others looking at him, well, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove it. Who are you? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. This was Herod's temple. It's a rebuilt thing. It's an extravagant, ornate, gold filigree kind of thing. It would be worked on for another 20 years after Jesus makes this statement. This is like a 65-year project, pouring money in to God's temple. They look and say, what, what? it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body is the temple. 
temple here, temple here, where he's introducing a shift. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples looked back and remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the first thing that's happening here, just notice, like Jesus is saying, temple old, temple new. You've got a temple here, but the temple I'm going to start talking to you about doesn't have anything to do with the paving stones and with the gold filigree. I, he said, am the temple of God. We know later on in the New Testament, the church is the temple of God. God's spirit dwells. When we come together, it's stone, 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 built together, Holy Spirit in the middle. We're the temple. We know also the Bible says, treat your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit because we collectively are the temple of God's presence, but we individually It's like you have a piece of Almighty God that has come to rest within you, to transform you from the inside out. Treasure in a jars of clay, light that's like blasting out of this broken vessel that we call a body, right? So temple, they look at temple and like, I see church, I see religion, I see ritual, I'll come here and do sacrifices. He sees temple, he's like, old version, I'm the temple. And ultimately he translates that to all of you who receive my spirit, you're the temple. This is a transitional moment. Nobody gets it, not even his disciples, but later it makes sense. Let's just take that as a word of caution for ourselves when we work so hard to preserve our temple worship and forget that we, the people, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we come together, where two or three are gathered, God's there as a holy gathering. Which one do you think Jesus cares more about purifying? (laughs) The building, get the mops out and the brooms out, or his people. He's in the business of overthrowing tables. What's he going to find when he walks into our collective temple here? Might have to kick some stuff over. He might have put some stuff in here that doesn't belong to him. What's he going to look at when he walks into our heart and says, you got some stuff you put up in here. My temple's not meant to be about money. My temple's not to be about extorting people and taking advantage Zeal for my father's house. Jesus is zealous for you as the temple to purify you. And he gets mad about it. He gets mad about what happens to us. He gets mad about what we do to defile. He gets mad about sins that happen or are caused. Same Jesus. This wasn't a one time. He just wasn't having a bad day, guys. It just wasn't a bad day. This is his nature. He will always fight for his father's house, the temple. And so he rebuilt it. He said, well, there you go. Now we have the hindsight. We can look back like, ah, we're the temple. Jesus is fighting for you. Even, even more beautiful contrast, what does Jesus say with his words in verse 16? Take these things away. Do not make my father's what? Oh. House. He doesn't call it a temple at first. He calls it the house. Because God's presence was dwelling there. It's where you go to like be close to God. He's not actually about setting up temples made by human hands. He wants to be where God's presence is. We are the household of God. We're being built, 1 Peter, into a, a household for God's spirit a house and a building for his spirit. Which would we rather come to? (laughs) A temple where we can fulfill our religious rituals 
or a place where God's presence is settling. I hope you come to this location on Sundays for the latter, but I hope you think of yourself as the latter as well. What do you want for your own faith, your own heart? Do you want it to just be a temple, kind of like a structure in you? Like, I do these things, and this is what it looks like. I don't eat these foods. I don't say these things. I don't go, I do these. Like, are you your practices, or are you a child of God, and you come into his presence, and then good stuff happens? And then when bad stuff happens, God turns them around to be good things that happen. Like, what's your experience with God? Jesus invites us into the house. In my father's house, there are many rooms, right? Heaven's a house. I love that. I love that. I want to add to what Jesus said, but we can't with this passage. We can, however, see another phrase that he added to it in Luke's account. Luke and John both wrote about the situation. John wrote and remembered or chose these things that Jesus said, and Luke remembered or wrote or chose other ones. Let's go to that. We're in Luke chapter 18. So just flip back one book into, uh, actually, Luke 19.41. That's where it is, Luke 19.41. Luke 19.41, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He's crying. Jesus' heart is broken. Before the anger is coming grief. That's how it needs to be for us, too. We need to have a grief in our spirit for the things that we know are still in our flesh that are not of God. And that grief needs to turn into anger, not into depression or discouragement or failure or self-doubt or God-doubt. Start with grief. If only. But I can't stop going. I will not stop going for that. Yes, not there yet, but I press on. The way Paul says, Jesus has that in regards to his city, his people. When Jesus drew near Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Oh, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, if you only could know what is real peace, not what you've got, and what causes it. But these things are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he entered into the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. My house. What did he say in John? You have made my father's house. What is Luke right? My house, Jesus says. He's equating himself with the Father. Who calls the temple his house? Jesus, the Son of God. That's John chapter 1. The Word was in the beginning with God. I love that distinction. What are you doing in my Father's house? This is my house too. Do we have that same sort of angst when we look out at the condition of the Christian church today? What are you doing in my Father's house? This is my house too. I have to live in this house. Do we weep over the condition of the church? 
And then does it make us angry to be wanting to like do something about it? That's what's happening here with Christ. He says, it's my house. He doesn't even go temple in this one. He goes, my house. And what kind of house is it? A house of? What's prayer? What's prayer? Simple definition. Conversation. He's in a relationship. He's just talking to God. That's what families do. He's just talking to your family. I want this house that we call church to be the place where people just come and commune with God and hear from God. And it matters. And all the things that are wrecking that are unacceptable. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We don't need to go to everyone and force them to do everything. We just have to make sure our house is clean. Never mind being judgmental about all the things that are wrong in the world. Look at ourselves. Where do we just need to clean house? If Jesus is coming in, where does he want us to toss some tables over, get rid of some money? Because this is, by and large, a monetary thing. And this takes us to, you know, further on in the New Testament, you can't love both God and money. There, money gets in. And money wrecks things. And the way we feel about money, the way we trust God without money, what we do with money, the way we judge each other if we have or don't have money, how churches manage money, right? This matters. And this reflects our heart either for God and our trust in him or not. There's like social injustice going on where they're not just, oh, you need a pigeon for the temple. Here it is. They're extorting money. And not only are they taking more money than they should, some people can't afford. So then it's like, well, you can't get your sins forgiven because you can't afford the pigeon. Too bad. And not only that, the setting up the table is not outside in like a little bazaar outside the front gate. It's in the temple. We think, ah, oh, why would they do that? How many churches today are about the money? How many times have we been about money? Let's clean house. It's not about money. It's about God and relationship. My house will be called a house of prayer. And when we pray, miracles happen. So if we need money, which is a practical, tangible thing, well, then let's pray that God gives us what we need to do what he wants to do, and then it's done. Like, fine, let's move on. That's not what's happening here. God's house is getting a reputation. The temple is getting reputation for being unfair practices, extorting people for money, social injustice, and no true spirituality. And Jesus is like, I'm going to whip that out of here. I am going to beat you guys up and cast you out. I'm going to take all your money. I'm going to dump it on the floor. Like, whose money was whose after that? If there's just a big pile of coins. He said, he said, cast all the sheep and the oxen out. What did it look like in the street when all the animals is like a zoo riot or something? All just like exiting the temple and like flooding out. Who got their sheep back that day and who never did? Who maybe lost their, their, their business because all the money just got taken by someone who ran in and grabbed the coins on the floor? He's not being nice. He's angry. He's not being gentle. He's being aggressive but it's about the right things. We get so mad about things that don't have eternal benefit, and then the things that are slowly like wearing us down and killing our spirituality are the things that are drawing us further away from God, the things that are depressing us, the, the substances that we're substituting for God's peace. All these things that are in the mix are like, well, you know, life is tough. We make excuses for ourselves. My temple's not that bad. Look at the temple of my next door neighbor. You should see all the stuff he's got set up in his temple. Clean house. This is the time to get righteously angry. And so Jesus started with his house. He didn't go to his next door neighbors. It's my father's house. It's my house. Start with our house. 
Don't worry so much about the person in the row in front of you or behind you, your neighbor on your left and your right. We don't need to go any further in our own house to know that cleaning needs to be done. And Jesus is up to the task. This is what we see. We see a God who is zealous for his name, for his purity. And uh, the prophecy says, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Would you turn back to uh, Psalm 69 so we can read where that prophecy comes from? The one that is quoted in Luke is from Isaiah. My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. This speaks to the universal love of God for all people. There's no dividing line between race or, or gender that God loves. We're all made in his image. Some respond to him, become part of his family, adopted. Some don't, but like God doesn't have blinders in that way. So that's the, the verse that Luke remembers Jesus quoting. But the one that John quotes, uh, I got to get there now, uh, Psalm 69, verse 6. Zeal for your house will consume me. I've always just read that sort of on its own, a standalone verse. All right, Jesus has zeal for God's house. It's amazing in context of when it was first written. It's written as this poem, as this song to God, and it's about this person who has zeal for God in the face of opposition. Now, how much cooler does that make that phrase? It's not easy for Jesus. He's about to get whipped himself and murdered. This isn't just, well, I'm Jesus and I know the future and so it's going to be okay. No, this is in the face of people taunting and persecuting, whatever, just like resilient persistence in fighting for the purity of God's house. Zeal, not easy zeal. Hard fought, hard won, persistent zeal. The same kind we have to have for our lifetime. So just read a chunk of uh, Psalm 69 with me and we'll see when that comes in. Like, oh, Zeal in this world, because I, I think it feels like our world. That's, this to me feels like our opposition. Psalm 69, 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Don't let me be the problem for others. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. Don't let me be the problem for someone else when they're seeking you, O God of Israel. Verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. It's David, right? King David. Like, I'm taking this, these hits for your sake, God. The, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become like a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house, God's house, has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and I humbled my soul with fasting, it became a reproach, mocked. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword, contempt. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate. The drunkards make songs about me, King David writes. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. How cool is it that Jesus knew all of this when he picked the one sentence? All of the reproaches on you, God, have fallen upon me. At an acceptable time, when your time is right, bring me the deliverance that I know you have because I'm covered in dishonor right now. But zeal for your house, not just temple worship, but your house. And so I, verse 13, pray my prayer 
is to you because I'm in a relationship. King David, Jesus, us. Same, 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 same. Right? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And that's what it's going to take. If we start putting up boundaries in our life and say, I don't think that this place that I go or this thing that I watch or this friend that I have or this fear that I protect or this anger that I, I don't know if those things are from God. I think I need to start making some changes in my my life, in my calendar, in my thought patterns. Well, we've been very content with the people around us in those places. They're going to feel like, well, who are you? What are you, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? Are you trying to be better than me? Like you think you're something special? Like, or is this going to change everything? If you just do this one thing, this is some big deal? Zeal for God's house will bring mockers, doubters, haters who watch you and either just think you're an idiot and it's useless and a waste of time, or they will feel convicted themselves and lash out with frustration, secretly thinking, yeah, I know, I probably shouldn't be doing this either. But who are you to say that? Who are you to do that? And all those things fell on Jesus year after year after year of ministry until the acceptable time for God to deliver. And I love that. I love Psalm 69 into the context of John chapter 2. I encourage you to read the whole psalm. And this is what we need to tie it all together with. I think it is our right and our responsibility to fight for the purity of God's church. It is your right. It is your, you are a Christian. This is your house too. It is your right to say, I don't want to allow those things into God's house. I'm here trying to live in relationship with him and this thing is stopping it. It's your right. You are the people of the church of this age. So we can't look back to Christians who have already gone into glory and be like, well, you know, they said good things but I wouldn't know what to do with it. They're not here right now. We are. It's our task. It's our right to be the owners and the operators of the kingdom because the kingdom isn't a building. It's the people. So if we're the people, it's our right, but it's also our responsibility. If we don't, who will? Can Jesus make the stones cry out? Yes. So maybe that's the answer. Stones. So which would you rather? You're going to say something, you can wait for the stones to talk. It's our responsibility. Let's take it a step further. If we call ourselves imitators of Christ, but we don't fight against the things that, that, that undermine and destroy God's church, then we're not actually imitating him. You have to imitate Christ's righteous anger to be a full imitator of Christ. It is not an imitation of Christ to stand on the sidelines and let God's name get dragged through the mud, let his reputation take a hit, see our churches become about money, See, the, the witness and the testimony of the church at large not be what it needs to be and just be quiet. That's not imitating Christ. So it's okay. You can fight for the church. It's your church. It's your house. But not only you can, you have to. It's actually part of your purpose. Be willing to be zealous for God's house. And in so doing, have conversations within church bodies and say, what would it look like to really like purify ourselves for the Lord? Are there any ways that money's gotten in, has gotten too important? Are there any things that have like turned us worldly instead of faith-wise? Let's get them out of here. And maybe one of us will see it and the rest won't. Guess what, one? (laughs) Speak up. Happens the same way in our households. 
One member notices that something's not right in the family dynamic. Someone isn't being treated right. Someone's overwhelmed in a way that is crushing them. Someone has a secret addiction that they're not telling you. You see it. You're the one. You have the right to say, well, I belong here. This is my place. And it's not just a temple. We don't just, oh, I've said five minutes of prayer in the morning. I read my Bible. And so I was like, well, that can be your temple approach to, to interacting with God. But what about the conversation? God, you, me, let's talk. This thing isn't good over here. How do I bring that to the attention of my family? And then what about us when we're just the ones praying? We're like, oh, I know I, I shouldn't need to feel this way, but I just do and I can't stop. I'm bringing you my house, Father, my temple. Let's fight for this thing. Maybe there's things that are impacting or influencing me that I can avoid. Maybe there's things we can put in, you know, whatever is noble, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is holy, whatever is beautiful. Think about well, what can we put in maybe or what can we stop putting in what maybe is just a miracle. Maybe we need some anointing with oil, but it's worth getting angry about. It's worth fighting for. For Jesus, the zealous Now, it's the right word, zealous passion for what God's house is supposed to be in our heart, in our house, and in the church. That's what he had. And that's what brought him to that length. If we have that, we will be a city on a hill. We will be a light in the darkness. We will be that little ember that shines something different. And we'll be doing what Jesus did. We'll be his imitators. So the, the question is, what does cleaning house look like for us as a church? What does cleaning house look like for us as families? Maybe have some hard conversations. Okay. Is it worth having a hard conversation? It feels like, well, that's the opposition, right? Like, I don't want to get into a fight. I don't want to make someone mad. I don't want to feel, like, responsible. I feel guilty. Like, all these emotions come into play. Maybe that's just your opposition. Will you have zeal for the house of the Lord consume you so that in the face of all the opposition, even the little voices in our heads talk to us saying otherwise, we just don't stop can't stop, won't stop, and we get mad about it, and we, we, we see ourselves fail, and instead of feeling discouraged, we're like irate. This stinking flesh is so weak. Again, this world is still against us. Satan tricked me again. Like, he did that yesterday, and it worked. Why did it work again today? Get angry about those things. Oh, we as a church, we became a nice country club, and we smiled at each other, but everybody's lives fell apart. Why did that happen again? When are we going to get mad about the stuff that has to do with holiness and the presence of God? And who cares about all the other stuff that's just the details and the distractions, the smoke screen? It's not what matters. You can gain all that and still lose your soul. So why not just fight for our soul? Why not fight for the soul of our neighbor? Why not fight for the souls of our children? Why not get mad about that? Like, why are you so mad if someone asks you that? <laughs> what could possibly matter more? Show me something that matters more than the soul of my kids. The soul of the church. Christ's bride in this day and age. We don't have to judge. We just have to get into motion. We've got to get into action. Jesus didn't actually tell any of his disciples that he just stepped up and he did it. So can we be those imitators of Christ in that way? Blessed are the prouse, for they will inherit the earth. So that means to be blessed when you're really angry about things that you should be really angry about, and you express that anger in exactly the right way, because it matters. Let's close in prayer. 
Father God, please stir our emotions, our affections, our desires, our will. Strip away from us the things that cling, that are not of you, the things that insert, the things that will not relent, the things that persist. Thank you for your grace. You forgive and you forgive and you give mercy and it's new every morning. So we have no doubts, no fears with you. It's just a wonderful journey with you. I pray for each person here, myself included, Father. Would you please restore to us a a wonderful home and relationship with you. May we not feel like outsiders in the kingdom. May we know you are within us and we are within you. Father, we pray to you, please respond to us. Please protect us and empower us and embolden us. For your glory, for your kingdom, for your church, for your house, and through your Son and your Spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.